1999, Sega released one of their more unique arcade cabinets, Typing of the Dead. It was a remake of their wildly popular zombie shooter, House of the Dead, but with a twist. You see, it replaced a light gun with a standard keyboard, so instead of pointing a gun and shooting the zombies, you now had to type them out of existence. Typing tutor software had existed for 20 years. You know, the kind that tries to teach you how to type by making a game out of learning process. But Typing of the Dead, well, it was just trying to kill zombies using words. It was an actual typing video game and the beginning of something very different. Today, we're going to learn all about the history of the typing game genre, as well as touch typing, typewriters, and keyboards, as we look at the complete history of Typing of the Dead and many other games throughout the genre's history. So stick around and join us as we increase our words per minute on today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you happy and well. Hello and welcome to the 131st episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, a technology, just something relevant to the current week. While doing so, while telling you its story, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Today, we're going to learn all about the history of typing games, uh, starting with its educational roots in the 80s, and lending itself into some of the more interesting titles today. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who I think still types out using the hunt and peck method. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, you know there's keys other than W-A-S-D, right? Uh, yeah, but I but I, I have to, to look and see what they are. I don't, I don't know if I've ever actually seen complete sentences from you before. No, because I don't type. I just talk. <laughs> true statement. <laughs> very true. Don't we all? Uh, the, this wouldn't be very much fun as a typecast, I don't think. That would be Wikipedia. be boring. People wouldn't listen because there'd be nothing to listen to. Sure there would. Just the, the clacking of the keys. ASMR. There you go. Ugh, no, pass. That stuff creeps me out most of the time. Agreed. So what you've been playing this past week? Well, Dave, this week has seen Smita Rocket League, Smita RuneScape, and a little bit of Factorio. Nice. How about yourself? A little bit of Rocket League. I know I played RuneScape because I finished a single quest, the Observatory quest. Woo! That's all, that's all I did. Progress and, is progress. And uh, our usual Melvor idol. That's like a daily thing for me to check it. And yeah. I played a bunch of Atomic Heart, actually. So I did have time to play. Oh, I, I dusted off the old uh, 
VR headset and dabbled around with a few random games there, but nothing of significance. So, hmm. but um, yeah, mostly in the time of cart week, it was a great game. It is a great game. Very Bioshock esque. That's what people compare it to. That's best I could do. I get why people are having a hard time with it. It's really unfortunate because it takes place in an alternative future where the Soviet Union kind of won World War II, I think, or something along those lines. So it takes place in like a Soviet Hold facility. On. How do you not know you've been playing the game? Right? Well, 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 so the history isn't that clear, but you're definitely like a soldier in a Soviet facility. And like, it's really unfortunate for the developer that that the world is what it is right now, because like. I mean, Russia's, you know, the war, the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, right? It, it leaves a bad taste over all things Russian for a lot of people who don't believe in that war. And that makes the game kind of hard to like sometimes because you're like, you want to be all for this, this, you want to be all for your country, but in the game, your country's Russia and you know what they are, but it's an alternative future. So it's weird. Like you really have to, um, suspend your disbelief basically to enjoy it but for what it is it's a it's great i mean mean, i'm really enjoying the game so i haven't played a single player story based first person shooter like it in a while so it's kind of a nice change of pace so yeah that's what i have to say about that fun times interesting so fun time well i mean it's a it's a game pass game if any of you are listening and you want to try it it's on game pass no risk it's worth i mean for me it's worth it i'm enjoying myself so it's worth nothing if if you already have game pass yeah if you have game pass it's no risk no risk you know but yeah so typing games you ever play them in school Ah, uh, yes, I have, actually. Um, there was one in particular I remember, though I do know that we will cover it in this, so I will wait till then to talk about it. All right. But, well, uh, yeah, I had one in school, and then, you know, one much more recently than that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, in the early 1850s, yes, I said 1850s, John Jonathan Pratt worked as a printer's devil which in case you're curious what a printer's devil is, it's basically what an apprentice was called in printing shops. Um, they were, they kind of had did everything. They did all the uh, work you think of as an apprentice, but their official title back then, it was known as the printer's devil. So John Jonathan Pratt was a printer's devil and a reporter for the National Democrat newspaper in Center, Alabama. By the late 1850s, he was also serving as an editor for the Gadsden Times newspaper, on top of also serving as a historian for Cherokee County, Alabama. So this was a whole decade of a lot of writing, right? Newspaper, newspaper, historian, all this guy ever did was write. And that left him with basically a just a lot of writer's cramp. Um, you know, I I don't know. I, don't, I couldn't tell you the last time I had writer's cramp. How about you? Uh, I don't write. Yeah, we don't we don't do a lot of writing anymore. No. So all this writing, all this writing left him with writer's crap, crap, <laughs> writer's crap. <laughs> a little bit of both. 
So the writer's cramp inspired him to make a mechanical device so that he wouldn't have to write anymore. That, that's, that's where he got it from. So in 1860, he built a crude device that consisted of a set of knitting needles that had wooden blocks attached to them. And each of the wooden blocks had a metal type letter attached to it. So you would ink the letters and then manipulate the needles to imprint the letters onto a piece of paper. So by the spring of 1863, he had developed this machine into a more refined version that would automatically print these letters onto a piece of paper. Now he called this machine a tarot type, which means wing type, like a pterodactyl, P-T-E-R-O, tarot type. And for all purposes, this was the first practical typewriting machine. But it wasn't called a typewriter. It was called many things when you go back and you look at uh, it in writing and patents. It was called a patent printer. It was called a mechanical chirographer. 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 Sorry, took me a moment to get that word. It was noted as being an improvement in printing instruments for the blind, an improved handwriting device, or a mechanical typographer, among others. But But again, it wasn't called a typewriter. We'll get back to that in a moment. So Pratt was from Alabama, which here in the mid 1860s was no longer a part of the United States. It was a Confederate state. This was during the Civil War when the the Southern states um, succeeded from the United States. They were their own country technically at that point. So here, Pratt, Alabama, Unable to patent his invention for various reasons. One, legally, there was no country to patent it with. I mean, the Confederacy wasn't organized that way. And two, he just couldn't he couldn't financially figure it out. So in order to support his invention, Pratt sold all of his slaves. Yes, he had slaves, 1860s in the South. And all of his property, land and otherwise. And he sailed to England in 1864. Here, he moved to Glasgow, and he was able to apply for an English patent. It was granted patent number 3163 on December 1st, 1866, under many of the various names I just brought up. So in 1867, the London Engineering Journal published an article about the tarot type. And this journal article was picked up by a bunch of other publications, but one among them that's important for our story is called the scientific American. And one of the many people who read the scientific American article on the tarot type was an American inventor named Carlos S. Glidden. Now a year prior to this, roughly about 1866, Glidden had formed a partnership with Christopher Latham Scholes, who was a Wisconsin printer and another local printer called Samuel soul. Try freaking sorting that out. Christopher Scholes, Samuel Soule, it's it fucking drove me bonkers when I was putting this all together. Christopher Latham Scholes had invented a device to assist with printing page numbers in books, serial numbers on tickets, and so on and so forth. And Glidden, Carlos Glidden, the inventor, had stumbled across his device in his shop, in this printing shop, and he suggested that they redesign it to be able to print alphabetical letters too. 
Now, a year later, they stumbled across, you know, as they're trying to make this, 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 this machine, they see this article in Scientific American describing the tarot type. And Glidden was like, hey, I think that this machine is cool, but it's overly complicated, prone to failures, uh, and thought that he could do better. So they took Soul's page printing machine. They took a key from a telegraph machine. They modified it to print the letter W, and they put the two together as their first demonstration of their letter printing machine. But inspired by what they saw in the Scientific American article, by the end of 1867, they now had a model with a full alphabet, numbers, and some punctuation. And what they did was they used it to write letters to prospective buyers in the hope of selling the invention and um, and getting word out about it. And someone actually took them up on it. It was a man named James Densmore. Now, they more commonly refer to this device as a typewriter. Um, you know, uh, in the end, John Jonathan Pratt would have invented the first practical typewriter. But what we're, what we're talking about here now, we're getting into is um, the first commercially successful uh, typewriter, which was which was made here in the States by, you know, Scholes, Soul, and Glidden. <laughs> it's called the Scholes and Glidden typewriter. So James Densmore invests like $600 into, into this, um, into their business, you know, to, towards this. On June 23rd, 1868, uh, they were granted a United States patent for what they named a typewriter, um, which was, again, what they used to describe their machines. So Densmore puts some money in, and they take the money in the patent, and they go up to Chicago. They're from Wisconsin. They, they go over to, to, you know, Madison, roughly, Wisconsin. They go over to Chicago. They rent out a warehouse and set up a, a machine shop to go and manufacture these typewriters. And they managed to churn out a whopping 15 of them before the operation goes broke. They have to shut down and go back to Madison, Wisconsin. Damn. Right? 15. Jeez. But they weren't done here. And largely the next decade is a lot of improvements on the typewriter. It was different people. You know, one guy invented the print wheel and one guy, you know, refined the keys. And so all these inventors started taking this device and everyone started making their own version of the typewriter. But Scholl, Soul, and Glidden, they weren't done yet. They continued to refine theirs as well. So when Scholl's invented the first typewriter, it was a piano-like keyboard with letters arranged alphabetically between two rows. So the top row consisted of N through Z, and the bottom row consisted of A through M. Now the next version of this device consisted of four banked rows of buttons that you would press instead of the piano keys. But because of the way the machine was designed, an alphabetic arrangement of letters wasn't going to work whatsoever. So basically, they were on type wheels, uh, and if you pressed two adjoining letters in quick succession, these type wheels would collide with one another and jam the machine. Nice. So the keys in the device needed to be reordered. 
And what they did is they went to someone they knew who was actually a superintendent of a public school um, somewhere, and they asked him to help them. And what they did was they performed an analysis of letter frequency in the English language, and they reordered the letters uh, based on their letter frequency, and they used some trial and error. Um, letters that were commonly appearing in alphabetical pairs, such as S and T, were placed on opposite sides, uh, so they were on different type wheels and wouldn't collide with one another. Um, and in the end, what they came up with is pretty much the QWERTY key layout as we know it today. There is one exception, though. The, the layout that they came up with, the period, where we know the period to be, Rob, and the letter R were switched. So period was in the middle of the keyboard, and R was where was in the bottom right of the keyboard. Ew. So as the story goes, kind of famous story about it, um, the period and the R were switched so that salespeople who were demonstrating the typewriter could type out the word typewriter using the entire row of top keys. Oh my god. <laughs> Whether or not that's true, I don't know, but it's kind of stuck with history, so there you have it. That's how we got the, the QWERTY keyboard. Um, the Shoal, Soul, and Glidden typewriter was you know eventually refined and and resold and became very popular actually it was it was patented out to remington like remington gun remington um and i think the first like mass mass produced typewriter was a remington brand but it was the you know glidden souls and shoal keyboard for all purposes um but yeah they kept working at this and refining it and took their inspiration from the guy that actually invented the typewriter and eventually they made the typewriter as we know it with the QWERTY keyboard. Wow. And of course, this gave way to what's called touch typing, which is the style of typing that pretty much everyone, I'm assuming that's listening to this, is going to be used to. It's also known as blind typing, in which you, uh, well, I mean, there's no other way to put it, you type without using sight, right? And touch typing was supposedly invented by a court stenographer from Salt Lake City named Frank Edward McGurin. So as this story goes, on July 25th, 1888, an American man, Frank Edward McGurin, who was reportedly in papers noted as being the only person using touch typing at the time, he won a decisive victory over Louis Traub. Louis Traub was operating a calligraph, which is similar to a typewriter, using the eight-finger method, uh, like hunt and peck type eight-finger method. And and so Frank Edward McGurin beat him, wiped the pants off of him in a, you know, in a typing contest that was held in Cincinnati. And the results of this contest were like put on the front page of newspapers across the country. Uh, McGurin won $500 for winning the contest, which um, uh, it lists 19, 2019 dollars was $13,000 in 2019. Uh, I'm sure it's damn. like 20 grand now. Um, but the result of this contest being won and this being all over the paper, this is supposedly where the new typing method called touch typing came from, which is what we use today. Man, can you imagine right now? Going back to this time and participating in that. 
like just now, with the amount of experience that we've had the yeah. spe- like i just trying to imagine how much quicker it would be like i know no i agree crazy. well we'll come to that too so um yeah, so Maguire won the contest, and blind typing or touch typing became popular, and that's kind of what stuck and became the thing. I mean, obviously to this day, which is which is good for us. It, it's it's it has been proven to be the most efficient. Um, it has been proven to be like one of the most efficient typing methods because there still are other like the Dvorak layout, for instance, and alphabetical layouts there are other layouts and the cordy is always proven to be the most efficient one so which makes sense when they base it on letter frequency in you know in the most commonly used language in the world so you know as early as the 1870s people were using teleprinter like devices to type and transmit stock market text data across tele- telegraph lines so they would use this these telegraph uh devices and you know they would tell what the stock market's doing and that would relay the messages to a ticker machine that would print it out on ticker tape that's where we get ticker tape from and that's how like financial firms and banks and stuff would keep up with the stock market you know way back when and get that that information you know from one place to the other and as time progressed the data that they were reporting was just becoming more and more complex. So the typewriter was evolving. These teleprinter devices were evolving. You know, by the 1930s, we had evolved to key punch devices, um, which had keys for letters and numbers, not just the telegraph method. And the best way to look at teleprinter devices are key punch devices. Rather, they were basically typewriters that transmitted data over telegraph lines which is kind of crazy to think of. We had that as early as the 1930s, you know, it, it it's, it's, I, I mean, it's not the internet, but for all purposes, it's data transmitting over data lines in the 1930s. Pretty crazy, honestly. I know. I mean, and of course, and of course the earliest computers incorporated electric typewriter keyboards that no doubt used the QWERTY layout. So, as computers became a thing through the 50s and 60s and and then personal you know 50s 60s and they started shrinking in the 70s and then the personal computer would have been about 1980 or so 81 i actually think was ibm pcs um keyboards during that time just became the main input method for computers and and let's be honest they've they've remained the main input method for computers even to this day so that begs the question, how do you train generations of new users on how to become touch typists? Well, the first of all is classes. You know, Frank Edward McGurin, the, the person who invented touch typing, supposedly, was a court stenographer who also, you know, coincidentally taught uh, typing classes. You know, but as computers became more and more popular, computers began creating educational software uh, that would actually teach people how to type um, on the computers themselves. It was basically training software for typists. Now, I I tried to go back and find, I tried to go back and find what the earliest educational typing piece of software that I could find. 
There's no like straightforward, easy Wikipedia entry on this. Uh, and I'm sure out there someone can tell me it goes sooner. But in 1979, uh, for the TRS-80, Rob, do you remember what the TRS is? Uh, I remember us talking about it. It was a personal computer that was developed by someone. Radio Shack. That was it. Yeah, the Radio Tan- Shack 80. Tan- Tandy Radio Shack 80. Um, so The Radio Shack, not Tandy. Get out of here. <laughs> Tandy, is. Tandy Radio Shack. In 1979, a company called Imagine Producers developed a piece of software called the Typing Tutor, which was published by Microsoft. So it's Microsoft's Typing Tutor, copyrighted in 1979 for the TRS-80. Image Producers really didn't do much after that. Um, They made a bunch of other TRS-80 games. Um, But uh, yeah, so that's, that's about... That's about it. 1979, Microsoft's Typing Tutor. In 1980 or 81, when the IBM Personal Computer came out, it was licensed and sold alongside IBM PCs as IBM Typing Tutor. I found a, <laughs> I went, I really went down the rabbit hole with this one. I watched a guy give a full demonstration on one of the first IBM computers of IBM Typing Tutor, like 30 some minutes of just some guy doing IBM typing tutor. I can't get that time back. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. But over in Australia, there was a man named Noel McIntosh who bought an Osborne computer. Now, for those of you that don't know, Osborne's were the world's first mass produced portable computer. They were really a flash in the pan. The Osborne one released in 1981 alongside the, you know, about when the IBMs came, IBMs weren't popular for a little bit longer. Um, and at the height of its fame, Osborne one was selling about 10,000 units a month, which is crazy for 1981 and personal computers. Um, I mean, these things were expensive, you know, um, throughout 1982, the Osborne company was working on an improved version of their computer. In 1983, they started showing this version called the Osborne Executive to Journalists. Now, what this caused was dealers basically wanted the executive, wanted the uh, the second Osborne computer. So they started canceling their orders for the Osborne one in mass in anticipation for the new model. And Osborne couldn't produce the new computers without the money they got from selling the old ones. So losses started to mount and the company went under, at least that version of the company went under in late 1983. So if you if anyone ever brings up the Osborne effect, that's it. It states that prematurely discussing future unavailable products damages sales of existing products. Fun little side note for you guys there. It's crazy. I, I mean... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I honestly... I, I, I Frick. They were built one, maybe two two models you know what i mean i forgot osborne even existed they they were trying to like they osborne came out and then ibm became the thing and they were trying to like tool themselves to make an ibm compatible pc that's what everyone ended up having to do they all wanted to do their own thing and then ibm became like the popular one and so instead of trying to beat them out everyone ended up making different brands of ibm compatible computers and that just that just kind of became it so Macintosh couldn't find any software for the Osborne that taught typing etiquette um, in Australia. 
so he decided to make one. This software was called TypeQuick. Um, it came out in 1982 in Australia. In 1986, IBM Australia agreed to drop their own typing tutor program, which was, of course, Microsoft's typing tutor, in favor of repackaging TypeQuick under their own branding. Um, so TypeQuick in Australia actually was the first title in Australia to actually have IBM branding on it. Kind of little fun. Some of these little fun, like random pieces of trivia you get to learn when you do stuff like this, you know? Right. Absolutely. That same year, um, that company, which ended up being called type quick, uh, bundled type quick with the Apple two E. So it basically was everywhere. Um, but mostly catered to business training, you know, businesses. Um, and for all purposes, it was super, super popular. By 1997, TypeQuick had made about $25 million uh, selling typing programs, which is not too shabby. So naturally, uh, in time, the software had to evolve, right? Um, they had to develop another piece of software. It was a more gaming-oriented typing software. It was called Koala's Typing Adventure, uh, koala being K-E-W-A-L-A. And that follows a make-believe koala bear through a magical kingdom where players learn to type uh, through tutorials or other typing practice methods. Um, it didn't sell as well, uh, so they did some like market testing on it. They found that parents didn't want to buy it because it was like too gamey. Uh, so they repackaged it, and you can actually find it under a few other titles now with boring packaging called Type Quick for Students or successful typing for students. And they still sell a version of it to this day. Damn, that's pretty good. Uh, long yeah. lasting one there. So you have you have IBM's typing tutor or Microsoft's typing tutor. You have type quick. Uh, but during the early 80s, these weren't the other only companies to have typing software. Atari actually had uh, a teaching game for software during the 80s. Now, this was developed by David Bueller in 1982. Uh, typo attack it was called was basically a game designed to improve typing skills now typo attack was sold through atari's program program exchange that was their mail order catalog where people could order software through it and people that didn't want to like sell software themselves could work with the it's called the apx program atari program exchange they could work with the apx program to get their software sold through mail order atari um, each year the apx program had awards one was for the best program, which awarded the game's creator a trophy and $25,000. And in 1982, Typo Attack won Game of the Year in the APX program. Now, Bueller was only 17 at the time, so $25,000 when you're 17 and it's 1982 is a, a freaking big deal, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, how even... I know, now. even now, that'd be great for us, right? Yeah, oh, you're yeah, right. right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. So you have all these, you know, typing software and Tari's got the typing game. And, you know, then here in the mid to late 80s, you have a company uh, that we've talked about before called the Software Toolworks. Now, Software Toolworks came into play. They are an educational software company. I think at one point we talked about them in the Oregon Trail episode. But in 1987, they released their own piece of software called Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing. Now, Rob, I'm going to assume, based on my experience, that this is the game that you know of. 
Correct. He, yes, although uh, the, the the name is quite messed up. Because <laughs> why? Why? What is the name? What should it be? It's Mavis Bacon. Yeah. I want it to be Mavis Bacon, and of course we've talked about this prior to this episode, and I call it Mavis Bacon, but it's actually Mavis Beacon. The name comes from Mavis Staples, who is the leader and singer of the Staples Sisters, and a beacon, uh, you know, a guiding light to teach people how to type. That's where they got the name from. I didn't know there was a story behind it that's <laughs> very interesting. And And Mavis Beacon, the lady pictured is not a real person. She's actually a, I want to get the country wrong. I think South African model, um, French model. I don't, I don't, don't hold me to the where she's a model who someone met coincidentally at a restaurant somewhere, uh, and tied her up with these people who liked her look and they, they gave her the job to be Mavis Beacon. Yeah, that's actually, uh, that is the one that I had prior experience with. Um, you know, back in middle school, I did have a typing class. Uh, I believe it was Miss Hornberger's class. And, you know, we had Mavis Beacon as our thing. And um, if I remember correctly, it was either that or there was another thing that we would do every day that would get you points in class. And with those points, you could either get like those little stupid slappy sticky hand toys, um, other random things. I think maybe tech decks were in there but the main thing was candy so if you did well in typing class and you typed fast and correct you could earn candy and that's probably why i got so damn good at typing (laughs) well coincidentally i had the same class like 10 years earlier i don't remember if we had the same teacher admittedly i i don't remember any of my teachers really so if i remember correctly miss hornberger was actually a dance teacher uh but oh, yeah. Chrissy would have to correct me on that one. It might have been the other typing teacher. Miss, my computer class was Miss Samuel, I think, because I used to go in the lab before before we went in there, and you know we had to put the floppy disks in the computers to load the software and type the commands in DOS, and I used to go in there earlier to help her load all the software on the computers. That's how old I am. Yes, so Mavis Beacon teaches typing. Do you remember what the draw to that was? Like, it was a game, but when you typed, what was it? Do you remember? Wasn't it like a car that was driving? Yeah, it was absolutely a car that was driving. Yeah, that's what I remember about it, too. Do you happen to remember how fast you typed back then at all? Uh, 80, 90, maybe? Yeah, we're all in that same. I think mine was like 78 to 80, so. Yeah, somewhere. So that wasn't the only title to come out during this period. You know, we learned recently, actually, in an episode about educational Mario games, about the game that was inspired by Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing, and that would be Mario Teaches Typing. Now, Mario Teaches Typing was developed by Interplay Entertainment early in the company's history en route to their creation of the Wasteland series. So I think we talked about it, too, in the Interplay slash wasteland episode because they went from wasteland to fallout i don't know but we've touched on interplay a lot and i know we touched on mario teaches typing which was basically just the guy had a thought and the thought was like what if i make mavis beacon with mario (laughs) and that was it (laughs) they did they made it um and these are all really great educational games right these are all games that teach you how to type I mean, that's a fair statement for all of them, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
around the year 2000, Rob, something kind of changed with this genre. What's that, Dave? We started to see actual video games in which typing is the main mechanic. Now, in the year 2000, roughly, 1999 Arcade 2000 was, I think, Dreamcast, um, you know, released about this time in those years. Sega released Typing of the Dead. Now, Typing of the Dead was a modification of their 1998 light gun arcade cabinet, The House of the Dead 2. And really what it did is it replaced the light gun with a computer keyboard. Had a very similar story, pretty much the same story to be honest with you, but as the enemies advanced on you, you didn't shoot them with the light gun, words would pop up on the screen above each enemy and you would have to type the letter, the word, or the sentence in order to defeat the enemy. You ever have you ever seen Typing of the Dead? I have not. No. Oh man, I remember actually stumbling across it as our arcade cabinet. I uh, I th- yeah, I remember stumbling across it as arcade cabinet. It was it was weird to see something like that? I guess. Um, and from there, Typing of the Dead kind of snowballed into something. You know, in March of two thousand, right here, twenty three years ago. Roughly, it was ported over to Dreamcast. In 2001, it was brought over to computers. They did a PC release. And in 2004, even, they ported it over to PS2. It was packaged with a USB keyboard, and they called it Typing of the Dead Zombie Panic. So, it was popular enough that they kept remaking it for other platforms, you know? Wow. In 2007, there was a sequel released in Japan. I don't think it ever made its way over here. It was called Typing of the Dead 2. It was essentially the same concept. Uh, it was a remake of House of the Dead 3, where they just replaced the gun with a keyboard. In 2008, Japan got a different version, but similar. It was a language learning version of the game for the Nintendo DS called English of the Dead, which I don't know why. That's kind of funny to me. And then in 2009, they started to redo these games in the Overkill series. So you had House of the Dead Overkill in 2009. And that was eventually repurposed into Typing of the Dead Overkill in 2013. You can still find a lot of these games on Steam, for instance. And I'm sure wherever you buy games, I looked them up on Steam. Typing of the Dead Overkill is definitely on there, along with most of the other games that we're going to talk about um, as this genre kind of changes. Um but realistically, Typing of the Dead was just the beginning. It it really made typing games a thing as opposed to educational games that teach typing. There's a distinct difference between the two. Typing of the Dead doesn't try to teach you typing. It just uses typing as the mechanic by which you kill enemies. Does that distinction make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it doesn't try to teach you. It doesn't have a tutorial on where to place your fingers or anything like that. It just... It just is where you type to kill things. Yeah, to know where things are to type to kill things faster. Yeah. So it helps to have learned previously. Right. Yeah. It Well, for sure. There, I mean, you have to know previously. No, I mean, you could you could peck and, and shoot, you know. Yeah, you could. You wouldn't last very I mean, long. Hey, I got a coworker who uh, he could probably type 50 to 60 words per minute doing a Pac-Man. It is insane. The man is quick. There are still games that skirt the genre between educational and actual gaming in this genre. In 2011, Nintendo got back into the typing game genre, you know, since Mario teaches typing. 
back in the 80s uh, with a game called Learn with Pokemon Typing Adventure. Ever heard of it before, Rob? I actually have not. That's super surprising. It sounds kind of awesome. There's a reason for that. So this is a Nintendo DS game. Came bundled with its own Bluetooth wireless keyboard. It's... It's an educational game which players assume the role of an amateur typist who have to travel through various learning courses where they encounter Pokemon and they capture them by correctly typing their names as they appear. You're a member of the Elite Typist Club under the guidance of Professor Quentin Wordy. Get it? Quirty? Quentin Wordy. Uh, uh, nice. And fellow member Paige Down. Ah. <laughs> uh. and you have to investigate and collect the game's 403 different pokemon creatures throughout the entire game the reason why you don't know it is because it was never released outside of japan it has the distinction of being one if not the only pokemon title that was released in english that has never appeared in north america well what the fuck man that's bull i know it was released in japan in 2011 Europe in 2012, and Australia in 2013. Wow. It never made its way over here. Cool. Go us. Woo. I know. Now, there have been some recent uh, additions to the genre that are actually pretty cool, uh, most of which I've played. So one of the more unique titles that I remember uh, came out for PC in 2016, March of 2016. Here we are, another March title. Uh, and that's called Epistory Typing Chronicles. You ever heard of it? no nope nope i I believe i got it in a humble bundle so you probably own it fair just a side note okay um like a like a monthly humble bundle uh so epistory is an action adventure typing game just like typing of the dead it's a game that the mechanic is typing to defeat the enemies it doesn't really try to teach you anything that's just you move around with with the keys and the keyboard and when you encounter an enemy the word pops up over its head and you type the words to to basically attack the story of the game is that you follow like the way they designed it is you're following a writer's writing process which unfolds like paper on the screen and is narrated from the perspective of the writer's internal thoughts so it's really cool actually when the developer set out to make the game they knew they wanted to make a game about typing and not just a typing educational game. So they their idea fits squarely in the typing game genre. And that's exactly what they did. It is a game that has a very interesting story. The art style is like this 3D origami, pa- like Paper Mario, but 3D kind of art style. It's a really pretty game. Um, it's hard. I'm not going to pretend it's easy. I'm consider myself to be a pretty good at typing and it tripped me up at times. Um, but it's great. I would highly recommend it. It's a really pretty game with a really pretty story. And, um, it's also available on steam or I'm sure you can find it other places. Yeah. Epistory writes very well. Epistory typing chronicles. Now it spawned a spiritual successor called nanotale typing chronicles. This is same concept, different, same art style, but different story. This one follows an archivist who has a talent for magic and what she finds and the power of words and, and as from the magical sense. Um, so you actually have two games in the typing chronicle, um, typing chronicles series. 
Yes, that's the word I was looking for. But, um, yeah, they're just gorgeous games with good stories. Although the second one's a little not as good. If you're going to play any of them, play Epistory. Epistory is worth worth the time. So, And then there's some more interesting genres, or entries to the genre, right? Uh, I showed you this one last week. We were kind of looking at it on Steam. I wish I would have bought it. It was, I think it was like two, I, I didn't, I didn't buy it. I just watched a playthrough of it. But I think when we looked at it last week, wasn't it like two fifty on sale? I have no idea. I don't remember. I think it was two fifty or $3 on sale. And you were like, eh, I don't know if I want to pay $3 for a typing game. And that, then this week it went, I was gonna, I was going to buy it like over the weekend to play it, but it went back up to $15 and I don't think I want to pay $15 for a typing game. So, um, but there's a game called the Texorcist. The story of Ray Bibia, and it's a hybrid bullet hell and typing game developed by a studio called Morbidware. It was released on Valentine's Day in 2019 uh, on Steam, and basically the game revolves around an ex-priest who still performs freelance exorcists, and he just gets involved in this big plot with demons and everything, and you have to you know dodge the bullets and then. Um, when you're going to exercise a demon or come up against an enemy, you have to, you have to speak the invocations, the holy invocations out loud. And the invocations are displayed as text on the screen that the player has to type. And while you're typing, you also have to dodge projectiles. That's the bullet hell part. So it's this weird thing where you got to type, dodge, type, dodge, type, dodge, it's a lot more fun than it sounds. At least I, I perceive it's a lot more fun than it sounds. But the texture assist, which is really clever, you know? Oh, yeah, it is. That's actually hilarious of a name. Now, if you're looking for a typing type game that you can go and play right now that really you don't have to spend money on, uh, there is an option. And that is a multiplayer online browser based typing game called Type Racer. In Type Racer, you complete typing tests, te- tests of various text. Wow, man, that's a tongue twister now that I wrote. Um, basically, you have to type as fast as possible and you compete against other users online. Um, this was created by a programmer named Alex Epstein. He was inspired to create a competitive multiplayer typing game because... He learned touch typing with a Windows shareware program um, and it didn't have a multiplayer mode and he wanted to be able to play against other people. Um, He honestly was kind of an experience and he didn't know that games like Typing of the Dead had existed. So he kind of made this online multiplayer typing game completely separate of knowing the the genre only to make a decent um, only to make a decent addition to it. Um, and basically what you do is you log into a lobby and there's a text in front of you and you are, it looks like, um, um, you race miniature cars. So they're lined up on a row. You know how they have those like horse racing machines where the horse that gets the finish line first wins type deal. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks like that, but with miniature cars and whoever's typing fastest wins. I actually did go on there the other night and I, um, I, I did one match and I, I mean, I'm not bragging about my typing skills, but like I wiped the floor with everyone. 
So well, yeah, it definitely puts you in a slow lobby the first time. I think I've actually, I I know that I've done. I don't know exactly if it's the same one, but something very similar to that myself. Gotcha. Yeah, um, I typed at like seventy eight words per minute, and everyone else was in the forties. So like, I just wiped the floor with them. So. So yeah, but this genre has also inspired some weird additions that aren't quite additions to the genre. In fact, because of the popularity of this genre in today's day and age, this genre has been parodied, hasn't it, Rob? Uh, yeah, no, I, I would say so. Quite. So I sent you a video game the other night, didn't I? Uh, yeah, yeah. That you Do did. you want to call it a video game? Um, an interactive typing adventure. Yes. So, it was a game called David Lynch Teaches Typing. For those of you who don't know who David Lynch is, he's a really eccentric filmmaker. And David Lynch Teaches Typing is a 2018 parody of the touch typing genre in which a likeness of David Lynch assists a player in completing a series of increasingly bizarre and unsettling typing tasks. Yeah. Nope, for sure. That's a great way of putting it. Uh, all right. So when did the game get really freaking weird for you? Do you remember the specific moment? I mean... Mm. Did you play it to the end? Yeah, no, I did. Okay. I was trying to think of where it got like the worst, because I mean, the first thing was kind of just like, OK, that's interesting. I'm not the really bug. sure. The yeah, bug. The, the bug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at one point, one point, at uh, one point, the game, I mean, it, it's a go online, Google David Lynch teaches typing. You can download it for free um, and it, it's 10, 15 minutes of your time. It starts out as a normal typing game, and then at some point it says "press bug to continue." And there's a there's there's a really weird animation of like a creepy crippled bug on the screen, and you're just sitting there like, "What do I pr- what do I press? Press what's what's the bug key?" I don't know what you did, but I just started pressing keys. <laughs> I mean, to- I I kind of just sat there for a second, waited, and then tried tapping like shift or something and then i was like yeah I, I, I what do i do i don't know and after about a minute or two of that the game just resets itself and it's like we're sorry there was a glitch uh please wait will we reboot or something it was something along the lines of that right yeah there was a glitch in the game and then it started uh asked told you to do the same task over again and then Normal. it told you to go take a coffee and cigarette break yep <laughs> Which I I let that music play through until it repeated. Pretty pretty oh. good banger right there if you didn't listen to it. <laughs> Take a long coffee and smoke break. Was real All good right, lo-fi you know. vibes. Yeah, real good, uh, real good lo-fi vibes. I was I was jamming out to it. All right, kiddo. Uh, and then the game takes a very distinct David Lynch twist and turns into like the creepiest most unsettling animation it it was fucking weird it was fucking weird that's all i'm gonna say it was so fucking weird oh did you (laughs) so the game i'm not wrong am i that that animation that pretty much the game ends on is just fucking the weirdest thing ever oh yeah no it's it's just i don't know how to describe it 
it was so weird. Teeth, I, I, teeth, teeth. Yeah. Um, do you have? Do you know David Lynch at all? No, that was my first experience. Uh, okay, all right. See, I know David Lynch. I have. I'm kind of a David Lynch fan. He's creepy in all my, the ways I like. Uh, crap, he's done music that I have. Um, yes. So, so that wasn't. I mean, that was. I was expecting something like that. Uh, just wasn't expecting that. Really enjoyed. It uses a um, a David Lynch like robotic voice likeness. I got a big kick out of the David Lynch voice. Uh, but the game advertises itself as a trial version. Did you catch what it said to do to, to unlock the full version? Uh, yeah, go to your bathtub and start clapping until someone <laughs> can assist you. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's like the last thing on the screen. To unlock the full version, go stand next to your bathtub and clap your hands until we can assist you. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah. I'm glad I found that. That was one of the more interesting things I got to send you. <laughs> so. I, I will say that was interesting for sure. There's no other way to put it. It doesn't really fit in the touch typing genre. It's more of interactive fiction that parodies the touch typing genre. But you know what? It's been a lot of fun. Um, there's a few other games in the typing genre. There's a uh, Type X and <laughs> I say a lot of other games, but there's really only a handful point is there's other games but i mean none of them have ever really stuck around or, or having lasting power or anything like that everything that we talk about today are pretty much all the 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 main ones you know starting with ibm's typing tutor and going through type quick and mavis bacon beacon i'm still always going to say mavis bacon into the mario teaches typing and and then all the games it's not a big genre but there's some games you know Typing of the Dead and the Epistory series and the Texorcist. And the funny part about it is they all bring something unique to the genre, right? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Like, Typing of the Dead is like a rail shooter and the Texorcist is a bullet hell game. And Epistory is more like an action adventure, almost RPG-ish type. That's kind of the, the vibe of it. Um, so you have all these games that have the same mechanic that typing is 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 their is their input method how how you play the game, but they all do it in a different way, and I I think that's really fascinating. Um, it's great, honestly. So, and if I could make any recommendations out of the whole bunch, go spend ten minutes on David Lynch teaches typing. If you're into weird shit, you will not be disappointed. Um, but also if you had to pick one, it's hard for me. I really liked Epistory. Thought it was a beautiful story and really, really great art style. Um, so it's hard. But Typing of the Dead's a classic. I don't know. I still think Epistory if you're going to pick one. I don't know why you'd want to pick one. To most people, typing does not sound like fun. <laughs> so, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, no, I, I definitely would agree with that statement. But yeah, that's typing. That's that's the typewriter. That's the QWERTY keyboard. That's how we got it to computers and training typing into typing video games. That, my friends, is the typing genre. Congratulations. You learned some things today. Uh, yeah, a lot more history than video games than I thought. But, you know, that was still pretty damn educational, Dave. Well, yeah, it was an, it was an excuse to talk about where the keyboard came from. So that was that was fun. 
um, you know, we've talked about some of this before. Like I said, we talked about Mario teaches typing in our Educational Mario episode, which is done by Interplay. We also talked about in our Wasteland episode. Um, if you want to check out our old episodes, you can do so by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can people find on our website? I can find a calendar of upcoming or previous episodes that we have done. Can find links to our social media, such as me on twitch.tv slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z and Dave. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong. So, each week we tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Uh, One of the best parts about doing this podcast day in, day out, is that we get to learn things. When you teach, you learn. That's the best part about teaching. So we learn every week. As part of our commitment to that cycle, we like to talk about our biggest takeaways. So Rob, what did you learn today? I learned why the keyboard is the way that it is. Uh, I've always wondered. I've never actually bothered. I I guess that's sad, bad on me is I've never taken the time to learn why it's QWERTY the way it is. I've just kind of accepted, you know, there was probably some good reason for it and took it at face value. Uh, but now I actually know the reason is just because they had some uh, some collisions when they were creating the things to do it back in the olden days. Awesome. So, yeah. That's that's pretty. I mean, you know, it's kind of cool to me. You know, it's always cool to see how they design old old uh, machines and things with the things back in the day, and knowing just that that's all it was is just because hey, we had some collision instead of redesigning the uh, the way they typed. Let's just uh, change the keyboard. Yep, for sure. But hey, it worked, and now we recognize it. Yep, got to spell out typewriter using all the top keys. Damn straight. God, <laughs> Honestly, that was probably my my second favorite takeaway is that you could type to do the entire thing without the period. I um, I liked learning about the typewriter. Never really learned much about it. I mean, the anecdote about QWERTY was really cool. And it was cool to dive into the early IBM software to try to see how early I could go. So there was a lot of really cool things here, but I liked, I liked the history of the typewriter. I like history. So anytime I get to focus a little bit on that that's not exactly video game but related to it i mean it was the technology that gave us the keyboard it's always a good time so that's my that's my takeaway um and on that note we did it so before i take it out of here rob would you like to add anything to the episode well dave as always i do want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to everyone for listening it means the world to us and we hope that you give a little bit of spark in your life all right. Well, next week, next week, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to return to the tabletops as we learn all about Battletech and the video games that take place place within its universe. Starting in 1988, Battletech has 30 years of video games inspired by its unique formula of giant mechanized warfare, and we're going to learn all about it. Uh, we'll learn about the Battletech universe. We'll learn about the games that it's inspired. Uh, we're going to learn about all things Battletech. So stick around and join us as we learn how to pilot giant mechs on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Scooby-doo-dup-dup-doo-doo.